It is exciting to see them so excited to be at worship. Truly it is. It is good to be together. It's been a long, hard year. And to gather again regularly, still trying to be cautious, yet nonetheless uh, seeking to worship the Lord together. The... TV screen and the computer screen just can't quite compare. Please turn in your Bibles for our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 89. God speaking through Ethan the Ezraite, one of the composers of the Psalms, helping us know how to best praise God. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with all your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shouts, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Thus far, our reading from the Old Testament. Please turn now for the New Testament lesson, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and it appears also to the other churches in that area. 
We begin our reading in chapter 3, verse 14. Where the Lord moved the Apostle Paul to write these words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in days of old through the prophets and then through your Son, our Lord Jesus, and then through the apostles and the scriptures. You continue to reveal yourself for which we are grateful. Please open our eyes this morning with the eyes of faith that we might behold Christ. Unplug our ears so that we would hear him speaking directly to our hearts. May the words of my mouth May the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last, <clears throat> last week during our affirmation of faith, we answered the question, what is prayer, with these words. Prayer is praising God giving thanks for all his blessings and asking him for the things promised in the Bible. Prayer is praising God, thanking God, and asking God for what he has promised in the Bible. My suspicion is that for many of us in the rush of life that we are tempted to reduce the definition, at least in terms of our practice, to prayer is asking God for things. Hopefully not everybody, but I, I think there, there is a temptation. We, we know we need to pray, and prayer is talking to God, and so we ask God for things in prayer, which certainly throughout the Bible we are encouraged to do so as his people. Cast your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request to God. There's no doubt that God asks us, indeed commands us to bring our concerns before him. But when we 
forget who we're praying to and what we're praying about and reduce our prayers to merely a wish list of what we would like. We lose sight of why we are praying and to whom we are praying. Our text today in Ephesians 3 is a helpful corrective to reset our prayer lives for Here, Paul's prayer is not being driven by his own sense of need. Lord, give me this, I need that. But rather, his prayer that we find here is being driven by the gospel itself. Notice in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees. And some of you will remember that At the beginning of Ephesians 3, in verse 1, he had begun that same way. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And and then he suddenly realized that here he is about to offer a prayer for them. And he's identified himself as a prisoner. And he needs to justify and give some explanation to how he, a prisoner, got this ministry from God in order to tell them what he's just told them for this reason looks back to chapter 2. And some of you will remember that in chapter 2, what Paul does is he lays out the gospel in all its glory as the basis for our reconciliation with God because of our sinfulness and as the basis for our reconciliation with one another as people people of different cultures and perspectives who are often at odds with one another rather than in coming together in unity as God's people. Now what is amazing that having written to the churches, and he's concerned for the churches, Paul is in prison. The animosity and hostility to the Christian faith is growing. He is in prison in Rome, and he's concerned for these churches. What are going to happen to them? And so he tells them what's most foundational, what's most important. He reminds them of the gospel, how that gospel impacts them personally in their relationship to God, how that gospel should impact them communally in their relationships with one another. And so as he does that, he is driven to pray. He, he, he interrupts himself. Obviously, he's not done because after his prayer, he's going to go on and spell out for them all the practical implications of the gospel for our lives, both individually and as, church, and as a church. But he's driven to prayer by the gospel. What moves him to pray is not his own sense of personal need. And again, it's not wrong to bring our personal needs before the Lord. But what here is driving him to pray is the gospel of God. Having expounded it, he's, as it were, overcome by it. And he can't do anything but pray for the people in the churches. 
And when it is the gospel that is the, in the driver's seat of our praying, rather than our own needs, again, we can pray for our needs, but what is in the driver's seat? What is compelling our prayer when it is the gospel? What is it that distinguishes prayer, driven by God's good news, rather than by our human needs? And there are five things we note in this prayer. We immediately see that when we are driven by the gospel to pray, that a humble appeal generates prayers, rather than a proud expectation He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason I bow my knees. The uh, distinctive posture here is, um, as he speaks of praying, is actually not the normal posture for prayer. We tend to think of praying to, uh, of kneeling in order to pray. In fact, older churches will often have kneeling benches where you would get down to kneel to pray. But, but in the Bible, uh, really in the Jewish culture, standing was the normal position for prayer. And... Um, In Mark 11, Jesus is instructing them on the importance of forgiving one another. And he says in verse 25 of Mark 11, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. He just happens to mention that when you stand praying, because that's the ordinary way that people pray. But it wasn't the only way. People did fall to their knees, but usually it was on an occasion of great desperation. For example, when Daniel heard that the king had forbidden his prayers because that was the only way that his enemies could get to him was by saying that he couldn't pray. He fell on his knees by the window and he offered prayers. And he wasn't going to let the decree of the king keep him from praying. And when Jesus was in Gethsemane, fighting the battle in advance, as it were, wrestling, With his coming crucifixion, we read that he fell to his knees in prayer. And when Stephen was being stoned because of his witness to Jesus in Acts chapter 7, we read that he kneeled down and prayed, Father, forgive them. At times of great desperation, there is this falling Prayer. It's very humbling to be on your knees. It shows just how much you need help, how much you cannot do it on your own. And so we see a humble appeal generating prayer. For this reason, because of the gospel, because of all that you have done, God, when we could do nothing for ourselves, when you and you alone could reunite Jew and Gentile, when that was your plan all along, but we just didn't get it, Lord, for this reason I 
bow. And it's interesting that he doesn't say, he doesn't use the word pray, but rather he uses the gesture of the humblest form of prayer in order to, as it were, become the verb, letting him know that he's praying for them. He's humbly appealing to God on behalf of the people. So through this distinctive posture, he reveals a humble appeal. But also through their common standing together. He goes on in verse 15 to say, From whom, from the Father, every family in heaven and on earth is named. He says, I'm bowing, praying for you before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now there's some discussion among the commentators. The Father is the one who unites a people, a group. But the question is, and there is a direct uh, verbal connection between the word father and between the word that is translated family. And the issue is that, is, is it saying every family or is it, is it seeing the church as united both in heaven and on earth and referring to the whole family or is it talking about every distinct family that might be in on earth or even in heaven referring even to the different kinds of angels that somehow God is uniting them together but in either case whichever way you go the point he is making is that we have a common standing before God none of us has any advantage in prayer over anyone else it's not that God is going to hear us first because we're Jews it's He's appealing on the basis of the Father, and he says, he is the Lord. He's the sovereign creator. Anyone who lives, any family that exists has come from him. And it's as a member of one of those families that I'm praying, but, but I'm praying in commonality with anybody else that would pray. So our common standing also points to the humble appeal when the gospel is driving your prayer. There can't be any pride because the gospel tells us that we don't deserve God's love, but it must be received only as a gift from God, that we deserve God's wrath and judgment. So gospel-driven prayer makes a humble appeal generating the prayer. But what we also find when the gospel drives our prayer that there is a Trinitarian orientation that focuses, that shapes our prayer. In verse 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, the Father's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power by the Spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in you by faith. Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the prayer. That as he looks to God, as he 
thinks about the gospel of God, the fact that the entire Trinity was involved, the Father determining to save, the Son willingly coming to save, the Spirit applying the grace that was purchased by Christ to our lives, that the Trinity now shapes his way of praying. And what I think is so important about this is that it, the Trinity is the full expression of our one God, and yet sometimes I think we tend to be rather Unitarian in our praying. We think of God as our Heavenly Father, and He loves us, and He tells us to pray, and if we ask Him, He'll give us. And so we, we're glad to tell Him what we want. We're just spoiled little children saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. But when we do that, we're not really seeing God in terms of the wholeness of who he is. We don't think in terms of the son who willingly embraced our humanity in order to pay the penalty for our sins. Or the spirit who alone can take what Christ has done and make our hearts live. Now, this Trinitarian impact on prayer shouldn't surprise us because Paul, in this letter in particular, has been shaped by his Trinitarian understanding throughout, as we saw in the opening doxology, where the three stanzas of praise, the first was the Father, the second was the Son, the third identified the Spirit. And then in the Gospel itself, in chapter 2, God being rich in mercy, he made us alive together in Christ and the Spirit granting us access to the Father. So the fact that now he would bring the Trinity into praying, his mind has been shaped by the Trinity. But it's his vision of the Trinity has been solidified by his understanding of the gospel. And so, when we selfishly appeal to Heavenly Father without consideration of what Christ has done or the Spirit who applies to our hearts, we, we really kind of ignore Christ and the Spirit and their role in our lives. But when the Trinity has such a hold on our hearts that the whole trinity enters into our praying, it gives a balance to our praying that is biblically based because the whole trinity, the entirety of God is concerned for you and was involved in your salvation for those who believe. And so we find this trinitarian orientation shaping our prayers. And we can't really pray concerning Christ without an awareness of who he is and what he did, dying for our sins. We can't call upon the Spirit without recognizing our own inability to help ourselves, but that it takes the Holy Spirit's power to change our lives changes our prayer and gives us a proper biblical balance. 
when the gospel drives our prayers, we see further that spiritual impoverishment focuses our prayers rather than physical necessity. Spiritual impoverishment focuses our prayer rather than physical necessity. Notice how he prays again in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He focuses on his, our spiritual weakness. That according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. We need his power. We need his power within us to make us alive. We, we need the spirit within us. We are born again because God's Spirit is working, taking out our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And so Paul is concerned for their spiritual weakness, and so he prays concerning spiritual reality. We need God's help if we are to make anything of our lives but he's also praised with a concern for spiritual ignorance. He goes on in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, to comprehend the immeasurableness of all that God has done to know the love that God has us. He's concerned for spiritual ignorance the importance of knowing the love of God, not just assuming the love of God, not assuming we're okay because I'm a Presbyterian or because I wear the name Christian, but knowing his concern for our spiritual impoverishment. And often that is the least thing we can identify in ourselves. It's easy to see somebody else's problem. Jesus himself commented how easy it is to see the log or the speck in someone else's eye rather than the log in your own. It's easy to point out someone else is struggling spiritually, but it's much more difficult to see our own spiritual impoverishment. And that's one of the dangers when we simply are going by need-based praying. If, that, if it's our need that we're, is driving our prayer, we tend to think of needs in terms of how do we survive as physical beings in this world? What do we need to get by rather than what do we really need to be who God would want us to be? And that addresses the spiritual nature of our hearts. So there's a concern for spiritual Weakness. We don't have power. We need power from God in order to live for Him. There's a concern for spiritual ignorance. We're distracted by so many things. We don't think and focus on God and what He's done and, and how He is working in our lives and how much He loves us. But there's also here something that, that I think is often overlooked in terms of our spiritual impoverishment and that is a concern for spiritual isolation. 
Notice what he says in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Now, in the Bible, the word saint is not referring to special humans from the past that we lift up and venerate and pray to. No, saint in the Bible is a reference to a Christian, to a holy one, to one that God has called and set apart by his grace. So when he's saying that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, he's talking about with y'all, with, with all the believers together. Which suggests that our prayer is not just something we do on ourselves at home alone. But we need to pray together with one another. We need to pray for one another. There are times when we get down spiritually, when we're struggling spiritually. We don't feel like praying. We don't want to pray. But when we gather with other Christians and when we come to pray, the prayers of others lift us up and get us looking back in the right direction again. There is a danger to spiritual isolation, thinking that I do the Christian life all on my own. It's just between me and Jesus. Well, it is between you and Jesus, and you need to get right with him if you're not. But you were never meant to do this in isolation from other people. As we offer prayers to God, an awareness of our spiritual impoverishment drives our prayer. When the gospel is driving the prayer, it focuses our prayer beyond the mere physical necessities, to what is more ultimately important. See, it is in bearing one another's burdens that we fulfill the law of Christ. One of the ways we bear one another's burdens is we pray together with and for one another. We help one another in praying. And to hear the voices of our brothers and sisters Praying for you. There is power, friends, in that. We pray with all the saints. We are to comprehend with all the saints what God is doing. It's not something we do on our own. Indeed, we hurt ourselves when we keep ourselves from the fellowship of God's people. But when we see that the gospel is not just about saving me, the first part of Ephesians 2, but about bringing me together with the other people who belong to Christ's church. That's the second half of the gospel in Ephesians 2. Then that changes our awareness of how much we need one another, even when we pray. And how impoverished we are. And how we need to focus our prayers spiritually spiritual weakness, spiritual ignorance, spiritual isolation, and not just on the physical things that grab our immediate attention. But he keeps on going. He's praying, and and the gospel is driving him onward. And it drives him to pray, showing that divine love sustains our prayers. That's what keeps us praying. That's what keeps him praying. Notice in verse, the second half of 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It is love, God's love, that sustains our prayers. It is love that gives us the motivating energy to pray. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Love is so important that he mixes his metaphors. He draws one from agriculture and one from architecture. Being rooted, you want the roots to grow deep for your plants. That they don't blow over or get pulled out. That they don't die. But for your buildings, you want them firmly founded. Jesus said, don't build your house on the sand. It's going to wash away when the storms hit. You want to build your house on the rock. And it is love that is the foundation that ought to motivate our prayers. And by mixing those two metaphors, he's merely emphasizing the critical place of God's love driving our prayers. And we see that love most clearly in the gospel itself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That if you believe in him, you don't perish but have everlasting life. It's God's love that reaches out in the gospel to us. It's God's love that doesn't allow us to be at odds with one another but breaks the dividing wall and brings the people of God together to be a display of his love for the world. Love is the motivating energy in our prayers. But love is also the immeasurable allure of our prayer. He says that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He We know that the world is three-dimensional. He kind of makes it four. He says height and depth, but he's just talking about whichever way you can measure. You are never going to grasp the fullness of who God is and what he has done in the gospel and how reflective that is of his love for you. You just can't fully ever search it all out. There is always more to learn. You will never get to the point in your Christian life where you can say, I've made it. I, don't, I can retire now. I don't need to work anymore. Not that we work our way into heaven. It's all by grace. But it's just God's love is so multifaceted and so extensive that the more we look to his word, the more we understand who our God is and what he's done for us in Christ. see that most clearly in the gospel where he sent Jesus to die for us, the more we understand all that is involved in that, the more we are overwhelmed by just how amazing is the love and grace of our God. It it just, it's constantly drawn us to look for more because you can never You can never get your arms fully around it. It's always a little bit further. The height and the depth and the weight, the length. You you just can't get your hands fully around it. It's too big. 
How amazing is God's love for us? But he goes on to point out that love is more than a concept. It's something we experience. It's not something we just think. It's something we experience. Love's experiential aim. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Love surpasses knowledge. We can read all about the gospel in the Bible, but until that love gets out of your head and into your heart, you just really don't know what that love is all about. Until you have experienced that God loves me. He loves me personally. God has saved me. There is the intent of the gospel is that God's love would take hold of your heart. Not that God would give you some answers for a test about love that you could answer correctly on paper. No, he's talking about a love that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond knowledge. And how does love go beyond knowledge? Well, in terms of our experience in our hearts. Knowing, knowing personally the reality of love. Not just intellectually sketching out, well, love would look like this and this, and if someone really loved me, they would do A, B, and C, and but not really having any personal interest in that person. No, love's aim is in our experience that we truly would know, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, the love of God. And you see when the gospel, which is the clearest manifestation of God's love for us, when the gospel is driving our prayers, then that love becomes one of the things about which we are led to pray for others. That they would come to know that love. Well, finally, as he closes his prayer, we see that when, when the gospel drives your prayer, it is the divine fullness that satisfies your prayer and not a material provision. Notice how he ends, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's almost impossible. How can we, finite people, be filled with all the fullness of God? But, But what he's saying here is that ultimately what we need is God himself. And his fullness of all that he is, is what alone will answer even our material needs. To simply have material possessions without having God is to have a very empty life indeed. But when God comes into our lives, when by the gospel he reveals that he is our Lord, Savior, when he 
floods our hearts with his amazing love, we can live with deprivation. We can live with injury. We can live with tragedy. Because ultimately, what we need most of all is the Lord. We need God. It is his fullness that alone can satisfy our soul. It changes the way we pray when we begin with the gospel rather than with our personal needs. We see that a humble appeal generates prayer. A Trinitarian orientation shapes our prayer. The spiritual impoverishment focuses our prayer on what is most needful. Divine love sustains our prayer. And the divine fullness satisfies our prayer. We need to think more about God and his love for us in the gospel. It's easy to be distracted by life and all of its busyness and the things we have to do. But when we think more about the Lord, and when we think about his love for us, it changes the way we pray because it changes the way we face life. Because now life is not about how unfair it is that I don't have this or that. It's now about how full my life is because God has shown his love to me. And suddenly these things that were so important before, which we're still allowed to pray about because they do impact our daily function, but those things aren't what's most important. And because they're not what's most important, they're not what we pray about first. And in getting the order right about what is most important, that's when our prayers are most effective. And when our lives are filled with peace. Because when we experience the fullness that God gives to us in himself, everything else falls into its proper order. Friends, you're still welcome to pray if you need employment, if you're concerned about a health issue. The Lord has obtained access for us so that we can bring those prayers. God cares about even those little things. But as much as God cares about those, he cares more about you as a person, about your spiritual life, about your relationship to him. And that, is entirely in the hands of Jesus and the Spirit working with the Father to do for you what you cannot, because of your sin, do for yourself. Reconcile you to Almighty God and reconcile you to others who also love the Lord. May God shape our prayers. May he make us the people he wants us to be. May we find our satisfaction in him.
because the gospel has changed our life. If you have never responded to the gospel, you can do so today. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Turn from your sin. Recognize how much you need a Savior. And embrace in your heart what God offers in His Son. You will not only learn how to pray, but you will find the answer to your ultimate prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You. Thank you for the gift of prayer. You do care for us. You know what we need before we ask it. But you know that our ultimate need is not about the little things that distract us in life. Our ultimate need is that we be restored to you yourself and that we be reconciled with one another despite worldly differences that ought not to matter. We thank you for the good news that Jesus has come to take away our sins, that he has come to break the divisions between people because we all are in the same position before you, sinners needing your grace. We pray that that wonderful truth would, would drive our praying for ourselves and for one another, even as we have seen Paul pray today that you would change our prayer lives, indeed that you would change our church life because we, by your grace, have been able to see, really see what the gospel is. Not in its fullness, it's too big for us to grasp. But the very immensity of us of it draws us onward. And we pray that we would never be satisfied, but that we would long to know you better and love you more and show that love to one another. But Lord, you have to do it in us. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.